Let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Galatians 2.16. This is going to be a different kind of a sermon. It's not what we typically do here at Redeemer on Sunday. We're going to look at God's word. We're going to unpack it. We always do that. But uh, it's going to be a little more topical because of what today is. I'll explain in a minute. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you because you first loved us and we love your word because it is your revelation to us. So help us to understand it, Lord. Help us to believe it. We pray that by it you would change us. In Christ's name, amen. So October 31st is not just uh, Halloween or spooky refrigerator day, whatever Jennifer was talking about up here. Uh, Those are good things, not bad things. Technically, Halloween is a Christian holiday, so don't get all freaked out. Halloween is a Christian holiday. I'm not saying that everything that people do on Halloween is Christian. I'm just saying Halloween, technically, look it up. It's a Christian holiday. All Hallows Eve before All Saints Day. Anyway, uh, some people love Halloween. Some people don't. Some people like the, the, the ornaments and the dressing up and trick-or-treating, and then other people hate it. Some people think it's satanic. Other people think it's not. Um, but in the midst of all of this, we sometimes forget that there is another special day that October 31st celebrates, and that is Reformation Day. You see, 505 years ago, to the day, tomorrow, a monk did a thing. This guy, Martin Luther, wrote up 95 theses, that is, statements and he nailed them to a church door. The church door was like a bulletin board for the community. People would post notices, needs, complaints, and Luther did that. He did what anybody did. And most scholars say that Luther didn't think much would come of it at the time. His 95 theses were points of disagreement, correction, and even condemnation for the abuses of both doctrine and morality in the Catholic church, his church, the church that he loved. But he saw that the doctrine was getting messed up, that the gospel was being obscured, and that many of the leaders were living ungodly, immoral lives and taking advantage of the people of God. Luther was not happy. So he wrote up his 95 Theses. And by the way, Luther was not the first guy to do this. He was the first guy to write up 95. But a couple hundred years before him, you've got, uh, what, William Wycliffe in England. And then you've got John Huss in the Czech Republic doing the same thing. And then in Germany, we've got Martin Luther taking issue with the abuses and the confusion of doctrine in the only church that he knew, the only church that really was at the time. And Luther's 95 Theses and October 31st is considered by many to be the formal beginning or launch of what we call the Protestant Reformation. And the reason is because while Luther wasn't doing anything very different from what others had done before him, he did it when the printing press existed, 
which means that people could take his 95 theses and copy them and send them all over the place. And that's what God used to really spark a revival throughout the world where the gospel was recovered. And that's really what the Protestant Reformation is all about. It's about recovery. Now, a lot was recovered in the Protestant Reformation, but I want to focus on one thing today as we look at this verse and a few other passages. The Protestant Reformation recovered the answer to the most important question humanity is faced with. There are many other things that the Protestant Reformation recovered. They didn't discover them. These aren't new discoveries. They are recovered because they had been lost or forgotten or pushed to the side. The Protestant Reformation recovered the answer to the most important question humanity is faced with. Now, what is that question? Here's what we're going to do for our time today. I'm going to give you the question, and then we're going to talk about how we, as human beings, try to answer that question, and then we're going to talk about how God answers that question, and that gets to the heart of the Reformation. So the big question is this, the most important question you will ever ask, that we will ever ask as a species, how can we be right with God? How can I know my maker? Now, I know a lot of people would say, like, well, that's not a question people are asking today. In fact, if you spend time with people in the world who aren't Christians, you'll recognize that isn't a question that they are typically asking. How can I be right with God? I feel like there's some distance between us. Maybe that isn't the most common thing that people are asking today. But the fact that they are not asking, it doesn't mean that the question isn't legitimate, and it doesn't even mean that this isn't the most important question that any human will ever ask and seek the answer to. What are people asking? You know, if I spend time, I spend time with people and I like to talk, right? I'm a talker, so I like to talk and I like to listen. I like to have conversations with people. And so when I'm talking to people who aren't Christian, the kind of questions that I know that they are wrestling with, some of these questions haunt them, are questions like, what's the point? I mean, what's the point at all? What's the point? I don't get it. Why are we here? And related to that... What's my purpose? Do I have a purpose? Not is there a point, but do I have a point? What is my purpose in life? People really do wrestle with that. Can I find satisfaction in this world that is broken and hostile at times? It's beautiful, but it's broken. Is it possible to find satisfaction? That's a real question. You see, they may not be asking, how can I have a right relationship with God? How can I be reconciled to God? But they are asking questions like, is it possible for me to ever really change? Can I change? Or who am I really? Those are, these are good questions. These are important questions that the scripture does answer. But here's the thing. All of these questions are related to and really exist underneath the question that we are asking, how can we be made right with God? How can I be right with God? I like questions like these. Questions are good. In fact, the Bible is filled with good, hard questions that we're supposed to wrestle with. In Job 14, 14, it says, if a man dies, will he live again? Or James 4, 14, what is your life? Mark 8, 36, what good is it to gain the world but lose your own soul? Or Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? These are good 
questions, questions we wrestle with. In Genesis chapter four, verse nine, am I my brother's keeper? Acts 16.30, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked a question. In Matthew 16.15, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Life is filled with questions and some of them are incredibly important. We're dealing with the most important one here, and that is, can I be right with God? Now, how does the world ultimately answer this question? I find that the world tends to answer this question, people tend to answer this question in one of three ways. One way is they say, uh, easy, there is no God, so I don't need to worry about it. There is no God, and what this really is, if I'm being as honest as I can be, I'll be, I'll be transparent here, even how I emotionally feel about this response. I believe that this is a cop-out. And I'm not saying that people aren't being intellectually honest. What I'm saying is people that tend to take this road are really avoiding the question altogether. They're not seriously engaging it. There is no God. I mean, Psalm 14.1 tells us that it's the fool that says in their heart that there is no God. To say that there is no God is not so much an argument as it is a state of mind. A state of mind that doesn't so much mean I don't believe there is a God. It's a state of mind that says I don't believe God, period. Because God does exist and God has spoken. He has spoken in creation. All of creation testifies to his existence. We are built, we are hardwired with a properly basic belief that God is. And so when we reject that, we are suppressing a truth that we know to be true in our hearts. Consider Romans chapter 1. You can just listen. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I mean, Paul, who wrote Romans, is explaining, listen, it is built into us. We know that God exists, but what we tend to do as a race is we suppress that knowledge and we either reject God entirely or we recreate a God in our own likeness or in the likeness of something else and worship it. So some people will simply dismiss the question as saying, well, there is no God, I don't need to worry about it. Avoiding the question. Others, secondly, others will answer the question by saying, well, uh, it's an, easy, it's an easy question to answer. Uh, there is no problem. How can I be right with God? You are. There's no problem. Me and God are good. God and I are buds. We're close. We're besties. He loves me. I love him. There is no problem. There is no beef. But here, when we take that approach, we are lying to ourselves. And there are two things that testify, that bear witness against that perspective. One is scripture, and the other is our own conscience. Scripture is really clear. Every human being to ever exist, regardless of who they are, what they've done, what they believe, every human being is made in God's image and is, is worth uh, love and respect here in the world, right? Every human being made in God's image. 
and should be treated as such. But the Bible is also clear that every human being, regardless of who they are, what they've done, or what they believe, is a sinner. We have all transgressed God's law. We have all gone our own way. We have exalted ourselves. We have not worshiped him as first and foremost. We have not delighted in him. We've delighted in ourselves or even in wickedness before God. We are all sinners. So like Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it's not just scripture that says that. You don't have to read a page of scripture to know that things are not just right between you and God because you all, we all, every human being experiences something called guilt. We are all guilty. You know it. I know that there are some liars out there, and I know I'm being a little harsh here. I'm going to call them liars. There are some liars out there who say, I don't feel guilty about anything in my life. I have no regrets about anything I've ever done. They're either lying to themselves or they are lying to us when they say these things. Because there isn't a human being alive that hasn't hurt someone else for which we feel a sense of responsibility. We have hurt ourselves, we have hurt others, and we have offended God. And the guilt that every human being experienced testifies that things are not okay between you and God. There is an interruption, there is a barrier, there is static, there is distance, there is judgment. So some people say there is no God. That's how I answered the problem. Other people say, well, there is no problem. Uh, God's fine, and then there's nothing to really overcome. I, I am reconciled to God without having to be reconciled. And then others recognize, okay, I, I see that there's a problem, and I can fix it, right? And that's, that's probably the, the people that tend to see themselves as morally upright, good people, uh, religious people in particular, tend to think like, okay, there is a problem because there is sin in the world. I have sinned, but I can fix the problem. And, and we like to fix problems, right? I like to fix problems. Like, I'll make it better. Like, hey, sorry, babe, I know I screwed up, but like, I'll make it better. I'll fix it all up, and everything will be smooth. <sighs> Listen, we can accomplish great things in this world. We can accomplish great things. Human mind, creativity, brilliant things that we can do horizontally, but when it comes to our relationship with God vertically, we can't lift off the ground an inch. We have nothing to bring us to God because it is our sin that holds us down. How are we going to fix it? We're going to do something good? Our sin holds us down. We have dug a hole that is just way too deep for us to climb out of. We have a debt that we cannot pay. And so this question of how can I be right with God is the most important question that we can ask, and it is recovered in the Protestant Reformation. And so what we see is that this is a question that God answers, that we don't answer. This is a problem that God solves, that we don't solve. And what the Protestant Reformation uncovered, among other things, is the doctrine of justification. I'm going to tell you up front, this is all about the doctrine of justification for me here, and I want every single person who is associated with Redeemer Fellowship to know the doctrine of justification, to know what it means and what its constituent parts are. Yes, theology matters to us and we should know what these things mean because these truths are not just abstract ideas that we hold as some sort of philosophical exercise. They are life for us. 
So it's the doctrine of justification like we see here in our verse, Galatians chapter two, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified, that he is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification, what does justification mean? Well, it's essentially it means, yes, to be made right with God. How can I be right with God? Justification, that is the answer. Now, justification, if you want to put a general definition on it, we can look at Romans 5.1 and say it means to have peace with God. Right? That's what it means. It means to have peace with God, that there is no animosity, there is no distance, there is fellowship, there is communion. But more specifically, when we talk about the doctrine of justification, theologically, we recognize that it is one thing that has two parts. The doctrine of justification is God's act for sinners. That one forgives them of all of their sins and gives them the righteousness that they lack. The doctrine of justification is God's act toward sinners where he forgives them through their sins through the death of Jesus Christ and credits them with a righteousness that they lack that comes from Christ's own righteousness. So these are the two things that are happening. We have cleansed, forgiven, so that we are no longer condemned, no longer in debt, but then we are also credited with righteousness so that we fully measure up. This is what makes us acceptable. This is God's work. It is his answer. It is how we are reconciled. God's act of grace through Christ that is to be received by faith. Now, this is not something that we can do on our own. You cannot justify yourself. You've heard the expression before. That dude's just trying to justify himself, right? She's just trying to justify herself. When do we say that? We say that when somebody is trying to uh, essentially establish a good basis for which they have done something. They make themselves look good, presentable, right? They're justifying their actions, right? They're trying to make it look like they are righteous. We cannot justify ourselves before God. It simply doesn't work. Our good works cannot save us because our good works cannot measure up. And even if they could, which they can't, we cannot remove our guilt how do we get rid of the guilt? How do we get rid of the things that we've already done? Crimes have been committed. There has to be a, a reckoning, a, a punishment. So even if we could measure up, we've still got all of the disaster and the debris behind us and around us and, one, and things that we're still going to do in the future. Here, and the problem is, look, even our best works, the best works that we can do, the most selfless, the most generous even those good works are still corrupt. Sin is still clinging to everything. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, Isaiah says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We're dirty, and we give off an odor of offense even in our best works. On our own, there is no way to justify ourselves, to lift ourselves up to God, to fix the problem. It can only be done by grace. That's another theological word, right? Grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor, blessing, and kindness. God does good to the people who do not deserve it. That is grace. 
If God gave us what we deserved, it would be hard and harsh. It would be, there would be punishment and little else, but God doesn't do that. He gives us grace upon grace, and the most grace that he gives us is in Jesus Christ. So God answers this question. He solves this problem. How can we be right with God? By taking it upon himself to solve it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, what does it say? For by grace you have been saved, that is justified, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, it is a gift of God. It's not of works, so that no one can boast. This is what we call the good news, right? As Christians, we call this the good news or the gospel. That though we are sinners who have separated ourselves from God, Though we are sinners who have offended a holy God and deserve divine justice, God instead extends divine mercy and kindness. He gives us his son, Jesus, who lived a life of righteousness that we didn't live, that we can't live, so that all who believe in him receive his righteousness. And then that son died on the cross willingly to take the punishment that we deserve so that we could be cleansed of our sin. So through Christ, through faith in him, we are justified, reconciled, at peace with God. God provides this undeserved gift. Let me give you one more passage of scripture. It's Romans chapter three. Now, remember our understanding of justification, that it's cleansing, forgiveness, and righteousness given. And this is where Martin Luther, that monk, 505 years ago, had a radical change in his heart and in his mind, which led to his 95 theses. This was the passage he was studying that changed him. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. He read this over and over again, but now the righteousness of God... The righteousness of God. We can stop there because for, for Luther and all that he was taught was a burden to him because what is the righteousness of God in Luther's mind, in Luther's understanding and in the church's understanding at the time, the righteousness of God was a standard, right? And God does have a standard. The righteousness of God is a standard that you have to meet, you have to live up to. God expects you to love others as you love yourself. God, God expects you to be kind and generous, to be patient, to be prayerful, to be content and Luther, by all accounts, a sincere and godly monk devoting his life to the ministry, knew that he wasn't measuring up. Because as pious as he may be or may be considered, he understood that he is jealous of other people, that he gets angry with people when he shouldn't, that he can be impatient, that he doesn't pray enough, he doesn't confess enough, he does not measure up. He hated the righteousness of God. In fact, Luther went so far as to say, I'm supposed to love God with all of my heart? Love God? I hate him. That's where Luther wound up because of this, this confused teaching that he was getting from his leaders. So when he finally starts to study this passage, and he reads, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That is apart from law keeping, apart from obedience. So wait a minute. The righteousness of God is not something that we're supposed to measure up to. Then what is it? The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So whatever it is, the whole of scripture has been testifying about it from the beginning. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And this was the big change. Because the righteousness of God wasn't a standard 
Luther understood, no, it's a gift. God grants his own righteousness to sinners so that we can be righteous. We don't have it on our own. We're corrupt and we're wayward and we're broke and we're rebellious and we're ignorant. And yet, what does God do? He provides a righteousness that we need and lack through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So here we have Christ's death on the cross, his blood is a propitiation that satisfies God's wrath and anger and justice and cleanses us from our sin. There's the first part of justification and it's his righteousness that is given to us as a gift. That's how we can be right with God. Not by anything that we do, but by everything that Christ did. And God extends this to everyone who is willing to believe. This is good news. The Protestant Reformation really recovered the answer to the most important question we are ever faced with. And they recovered it by pointing us all back to scripture over tradition to see the truth that is sometimes forgotten or misplaced. This is the question. Whether you recognize it yet or not, this is the question. And I know this is the question. I know it because I'm reading scripture, but I also know it because I've, I've learned it experientially. Because I wasn't asking this question before I became a Christian, how can I be made right with God? But I was asking, what's the point? Why live? Why not give up? Do I have a purpose? I was asking that. Is there satisfaction in this broken and twisted world? Can you find it? Can I change? Can I ever be more than I am? Listen, I grew up in a house, blue-collar house, where back then the idea of finding yourself was considered, what was the word? Stupid. Uh, you don't need to find yourself. If you, need to, if you have any trouble finding yourself, look in the mirror. Oh, there I am. Done. Now you found yourself. You need to find yourself. I'm just trying to really learn who I am. You know, I just don't know who I am. I'm just we all made fun of that, right? Because like, hey, we've got things to do. We've got bills to pay. Quit playing games. But the truth is, I was asking that question. A lot. I didn't ask it in that way. Dad, who am I? You know, what's the point? I gotta find myself. I wasn't asking that. But it was at the heart of my problem. I was asking these questions. And nobody could help me. Because every answer they supplied with was temporal or contextual. And it could fall apart pretty easy. It wasn't until I began to meet Christians who began to tell me that my greatest need is to be reconciled to God. And in reconciliation to God, all of these other questions are answered. Is there a point? And do I have a purpose that goes beyond my own imagination or cultural expectations? Yes. You see, when you understand that you are not only made by God, created by God, fearfully and wonderfully made, but that you are a sinner in need of redemption and that God's love for you redeems you from that, yes, you then know that while there is a point to everything, God is redeeming this world. He is taking it somewhere and he's taking me with him. My purpose now is to live in that redemption and to, the way the Presbyterians put it was, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the purpose. 
And it's a purpose that transcends our circumstances. So when you're wondering, like, is there any satisfaction to be had in this world? The answer is, of course there is. It's just short term. It's just short lived. It's superficial. Doesn't mean it's bad. Sometimes we're satisfied with bad things. But even the good things, it's all short term. Marriages end. People die. Money is stolen. Jobs can get lost. The satisfaction in this world is at best temporal at best but in any and every circumstance when we know that God is ours and we are his we find a divine sort of satisfaction not an earthly one that transcends our circumstances so that we know in whatever circumstance we find ourselves God is with me and for me and the world can't take this away it doesn't mean it's wrong to be satisfied or to find satisfaction in these worldly things but there has to be one that trumps them all can I change? The world doesn't believe that people can change. By and large, most people in the world like to go like, oh, people can't change. People don't change. And if you don't, if you don't hear that enough, just start talking about certain crimes and criminals. Then you'll start to find out pretty quick, oh no, those people don't change. We want to, everybody wants to change. Everybody wants to become better, to become stronger or smarter or more successful. Whatever level we're talking, we want to change. And here's the reality. Can I really change? Not just my circumstances or my discipline or my habits. Can I change? Can I be a different person? The answer is, in one sense, no. You can't change yourself because the world is right. You are what you are by nature. But the good news is that God changes you. God can change you. So yes, you can change by God's power and God's grace. Anyone who is in Christ, that person is a new creature. The old has passed away, the new has come. And the God that justifies you is also the God that sanctifies you. That is, he begins to mold you progressively into the person you're supposed to be. The ideal you. The one that looks more like Jesus than anyone else. Who am I? Every Christian should be able to answer this question with, I am a child of the living God. I am a son or daughter of the creator and sustainer of all things. I am a friend of God. And I am not these things because I've deserved it or earned it. I wasn't born into it. God chose me, blessed me, saved me of his own mysterious will. He justified me. He forgave me. He gave me righteousness that I lacked. He gave me everything. To understand that you are, who are you? You are forgiven and loved. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. Who am I is answered, but it's all answered in connection to this great question of how can we be right with God? The answer is we can only be right with God through Christ and we lay hold of Christ by faith, not by doing, not by performing. You do not lay hold of Christ by changing your behavior, though some of you really do need to change your behavior. I know I do. We lay hold of Christ by faith and faith alone. We believe, that is, we accept God's offer. We believe his promise. And in that moment, we are forgiven and accepted and brought near to him and nothing can separate us from that. That's part of what the Reformation recovered. It's not just history. It's not just doctrine. It's life. 
and it's life for anyone who is willing to believe. So wherever you're at, if you're a Christian who's been at it for a long time, maybe, maybe you need to recover a sense of the gospel. Maybe you need to recover a sense of, of, of the doctrine of justification. Maybe you need to recover these things because you've maybe dismissed them or they've become old to you. Or maybe you're not a Christian at all and you're hearing all of this because I remember what it's like to hear these things and think that it all sounds kind of, kind of cool or beautiful or something, but it's too far away. It's not far away. It is right before you for the taking. You believe. And if you do, you will receive God's grace and promises. And here's the, the bottom line for us. We have these promises in Scripture. God has given us his word that we might see these promises. Do you see them? We should all see them today. It should all be clear. So we should all lay hold of them by faith and worship God together as brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the Most High God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for your work, not only in the Bible, but throughout history, Lord, all the things that you have accomplished, we're so grateful. Lord, we pray that you would teach us and that you would lead us and that you would revive us and that you would help us to recover doctrines that we have forgotten about or, or, or tossed aside for whatever reason, Lord, that you would make us sensitive to your truth again. Lord, we want to be a people who love you in response with a vigorous love. Lord, we, we want to be earnest and, and passionate in our zeal for you, but we want that to be grounded in the truth of the gospel. So we pray, God, we lift ourselves up to you and ask for more of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.